Amen. What is Matthew? We've been reading in Matthew the Lord. What was he teaching the people about having an anxious heart? What did he say in Matthew 6? About worry. Be anxious for nothing. Yeah, Philippians. Yeah, Philippians chapter 4 says, Be anxious for nothing. And in everything, give thanks with supplication. Make your request be made known unto God. Yeah. But Matthew 6, he talks about um, worrying. King James says, take no thought. Do not worry. Worry about what? Don't worry about, it says the ungodly people worry about those kind of things, right? Isn't that what he said? He said natural people who don't have a supernatural God intervening on their behalf, they, they think about this kind of stuff. But you ought not have to think about this, right? Why, why does he say you ought not have to think about these kind of things or worry about things? Our Father in heaven, he knows what we need, right? And what kind of what kind of principle did he teach us out of that? He taught us a principle, a principle of priority. What does he say? So the the actual passage says that there there is something to worry about, and what is it? there's anything to worry about, anything to be anxious about, what ought it be? Whether we seek in him first and his righteousness and kingdom, right? That, that's what, if there's anything that we as the people of God ought to be concerned about, to be anxious about, to worry about, it is are we practicing this principle of seeking first the kingdom of God? and his righteousness but oftentimes that's that's not the case is it we're worried about everything else that has no no value no significance to it apart from now it it, it, it it's it's important to us at the time and it may be even involving relationships with other people which is important to god because he's already said if you seek god you come to him you bring a gift to him and you know you, your brother's at ought with you, what all you should do? What should you do? We've been reading this in Matthew. What did he say? Make it right. What, how did how to describe it, though? What do you do to make it right? He said, leave your gift. Leave your gift on the altar. Leave what you was going to do. Leave it there and what? Go to your brother. Get it right with him because it's obvious you've done something wrong. So you need to go reconcile this. You need to go get it right, get it right with your brother, and then come back to the altar and bring it and present it unto me. Because if, if not, we're only, we're only fooling ourselves, right? Isn't that what he said? Some of y'all looking at me like I'm talking about another planet or something. 
don't worry. Is that something you struggle with? But are you but are you worrying about the right thing? Because there's something to worry about that you, you, you're going to be you, you're going to you, your thought life. We're created to to ponder. No matter how your mind's not going to stop working for you. It's going to work and it's going to think on. It's going to ponder things. The question would be, is it directed in the right place? And when it's not, our lives will reflect that. The word literally, when it's talking about be anxious, don't worry, take no thought, it has the idea of torture. You know worrying about things that have no eternal significance to them? Or let me say this, it's, it's okay to think about things once you've practiced the principle of priority. You've sought God first on it. And you've given it over Him. And you let Him calm you. You let Him guide you and govern you. And He will guide you through whatever whatever it is got to go through. But when we worry about things, when we're anxious about it, the visual picture is that you're, you're torturing yourself. You're actually... Your mind is divided. And a divided mind is a picture of being tortured or pulled apart. What they used to do to believers back in, uh, in, in times past, and more than likely in some countries they still do this today, they would torture them by, by taking them and tying them up and stretching them out to the point of pulling limbs off, pulling an arm out of socket ripping them apart from their body, from the inside of their legs, tearing them apart to recant and, 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 and revert from being a follower of Jesus as a form of torture. It means to stretch the body. And they, people still torture people today. And it may not just be for the sake of Jesus or whatever, but they, they do that. There, there's been practices of countries in military terms to try to get information from people and they tie them up and they stretch them out and they pull them apart and pull. Imagine you ever had your arm, your shoulder come out of socket? And they pull that out. And sometimes they even rip skin and tear them, literally tear them apart. The Bible says about people even in the Old Testament in the first century that some were rent asunder. They were torn apart, ripped apart. Well, that's what we do to ourselves Every time we worry about a specific issue, we're creating self-mutilation. We're mutilating our mind because our minds are divided. We're tearing our minds apart because I, I'm, I'm thinking that God's going to come through for me, but, but what I have to do in this and what do I need to take care of in this and, and my mind is tortured. I'm, I'm divided in my mind. And what the Bible teaches us more than anything is our minds need to be single-minded. That's why it says seek first the kingdom of God. That's taking and centering your mind on this one priority to seek the one who's in control of all things and let him work everything out. When you try to seek him and work everything out or fix everything or worry about everything, you're creating mental suicide. You're pulling yourself apart. You're torturing yourself. And we're all guilty of it, aren't we? Must seek out 
the Lord first. Go to 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter number 1. Let's see. I think it's chapter 1, 2 Corinthians. If it's not, will you forgive me? All right, yeah, chapter 1, verse 12. What does the Apostle Paul say to the church? Somebody begin reading verse number 12. 2 Corinthians 1, 12. Notice what he says here. He says, for our rejoicing, the idea is our glory. What we boast in for ourselves is this. The testimony or the evidence provided of our conscience, our conscience, which what does the word conscience mean? It's a compound word. What does it mean? What does the word con mean? means with, with knowledge. What does the word science mean? Knowledge. Conscience. Conscience. It means with knowledge. You see, we have a conscience, and our conscience knows what we think and do, doesn't it? It has knowledge of what we do, and sometimes our conscience, what? Bears witness against us, and sometimes our conscience does what? Affirms what we're doing and paul is saying we have evidence of our conscience our conscience is clear it bears witness that in simplicity and godly sincerity not with fleshly wisdom but by the grace of god we had our conversation in the world and more abundantly to you would when he says that this is what we rejoice in we rejoice over this, that we have lived in simplicity, the beauty of simplicity. We have lived a simple life toward the world and even more abundantly toward the people of God. That our conscience bears witness that we have a, we're clear on this, that in simplicity, the word simplicity means here, it means the braiding of the hair. A literal word would be to braid the hair. You take all your, all your hair, you ladies, and braid your hair, and you get one braid out of it. You take all those pieces and parts and pull it in to get one single, one group. It means to be single. Simplicity means to be single, to be one. So Paul is saying we, our conscience bears witness with us that this is our rejoicing, that we've lived in this world with a single focus, with a single agenda. And then he says godly sincerity. The word godly sincerity, he's saying that we've lived in the light or in the view of God without wax. That means that we have lived a life that is authentic and pure and our conscience bears witness to it and we rejoice over the fact that we've stayed single-minded not sinless perfection because you're going to mess up. Amen? But if there's anything that we should pursue, it is to be single-minded. And that single-mindedness is this, that we seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and everything else in our life. He'll unveil for us and show us the path to walk. 
And when we live that simple lives, they may be a busy life, but it's a simple life. It's a single life. And it's an authentic life that he says we didn't accomplish this with fleshly wisdom. How was we able to live this way? How could we live single-mindedly? Authentic lives. How? What does he say? Not by fleshly wisdom, but by what? How does he say it in the passage? Look. By the grace of God. So see, when God's grace is effectively at work in our life, what it produces in us is a singleness or a sim simplistic life. That we're not trying to do what everybody else is doing. We don't have to keep up with everybody else. Amen? Well, matter of fact, we need to be the ones who set the pace on how to seek God's face and Him first. Really. We ought to be, you and I ought to be examples that when people look at us, they say, how in the world do they live the, the, what they, the way they do, the things that they accomplish? They live such a simplistic life. But man, what an effective life. It really touches and has an influence on people. I ain't caught up with everybody else and all the events and the things that are going on in this world man they are set on the course that god has given them and they live a simple simple sincere and authentic life and man there's peace there amen he said if we got anything to rejoice about to boast about it's the fact that our conscience affirms that we're doing what god set us apart to do and we're seeking him first in his kingdom. The principle of priority. That's what we're consumed with. Single-minded living. And there's a blessing there. It's peace, amen. It's contentment and confidence. And, and that you, you're not going to distract me and pull me off course. Because I, I look, I'm, I'm seeking the Lord. I know what he's called me to do. And I know what I'm supposed to do. And that's what I'm going to pursue. And whatever he brings my way, I'll take it as he brings it. But I'm not going to let it throw me off course. I'm not going to let it get to me because I'm going I'm to get to the one who's in control of all these things. And that's really what, what the, the life that Jesus lived. Jesus never got moved off course, did he? Remember what we've been reading? He said he needed to go from town to town and preach and teach the gospel and, and heal folks and no matter what, there was times people tried to get to him, and he said, look, I've got to go to other cities and preach. And he left them trying to find him. Never distracted. Why? Because the Father laid a course for him to walk, and that's what he walked, and that's what he went. And when people would hear him teach, they would marvel at him because he taught with such confidence. He taught with such authority because people did not manipulate him. He influenced the world he was sent to. And that's the life that God has set us apart to live as we're being conformed to the image of the lord and the neat thing about it it works in perfect harmony with the body of christ fits perfectly because each one of us have a part we're all part of one body amen and each part has its role and as we know what that is and walk in it man god blesses tremendously and we could be settled and steadfast in, in that walk. So seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And you, you, what you do is you do what, what we've been doing is we've learned that, okay, if that's the first thing I'm going to do in the morning, I'm going to seek the Lord because I'm giving him my mornings. I'm giving myself to him so he can lay the course out for me. That sets you up for a pattern 
that that God's given you the vision and the word to live out each day that when things come your way, what do you learn how to do? You go to the one who gave you the day to live out. And if he can give you a word to, to handle what he's going to put you in, when you get in a situation, you learn how to seek him and his face for a word that he has for you from each and every day. Amen? Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. So when you feel yourself torturing yourself, you know what I'm talking about, don't you? Mind being tore apart. Just take your hands off and say, Lord, forgive me. Help me. I need to hear a word from you. I'm going to seek you on this. And I'm going to keep seeking you until you give me clarity on, on what you would have me to do. Amen? And he'll bless it. Somebody else, something you've been gleaning out of your, out of your reading. Boy, you reading that's that sermon on the mount's tough now. How many of you live up to the standards of the Sermon on the Mount? I mean, what did he say? If you call if you call somebody Raka, what does that mean? And then he said, if you call somebody a fool, he said Raka and fool. What's that? If you call somebody Raka, you in danger of what? The council. And if you call somebody a fool, you're in danger of hellfire. Man, that puts us all in a bind, don't it? What the Sermon on the Mount does, it's showing God's standard, a standard that none of us have lived up to, a standard that we can't live up to. Therefore, Christ himself can live and did live that standard, and it drives you to seek mercy and say, woe is me. Help me, Lord, I need you. I can't live your standard of living but you can, and therefore, I'm going to appropriate your righteousness because you live this for me. But help me be single-minded, looking to you who will guide me in ways that you want me to walk. Anybody know what Raka means? Empty-minded. What do you think of when you think of somebody being empty-minded? Well, what do you define? What's the difference between ignorance and stupidity and foolishness? What's, what's, what does ignorance mean? Well, you're ignorant. Yeah, you are. You're ignorant of certain things. Everybody's ignorant of certain elements of things. True. And that's what ignorance is. Ignorance means without knowing, without knowledge. I'm just without knowledge in certain things. I, I don't know a thing about, let's name something. What do you don't know a thing about? You're ignorant when it comes to rocket science. Amen? Science. You are. So you can be ignorant of a particular dynamic of life. And then, yes, you can be Many times we find ourselves willfully ignorant in regards to biblical truth because it was made available to us. We chose not to seek it and to find out, so I am willfully ignorant. I don't know it, 
But I don't know it because I didn't apply myself to know it, though it was made available to me. I could have known it. Had I lived that principle of priority in my life and sought the kingdom of God first and his righteousness, I would be a whole lot further along than I am today. So, yeah, we are willfully ignorant in some things, and we are ignorant in some things just because we've never been exposed to it before. Just don't know. Now, what, what would be stupidity? Because you're ignorant of it, but you have enough sense not to try to fly one, and we would tell you you've got enough sense within you that says you can't fly one, but you would despise instruction and do it anyway. That would be foolish and stupid all together, wouldn't it? Right. But stupidity is this. Stupidity is that I, I know but I choose not to act on what I know and do something that is ridiculous, you know. It's not saying you don't have the capacity to know or to learn. It's saying I do know, but I choose to do, I choose to go another direction. The Bible says in Proverbs chapter 12, 1, he who despises instruction is stupid. Have you ever been stupid before? Everybody say, yeah. Amen. Amen. Foolish. What is foolishness? Silliness. That is acting out the, the silliness or the, the frailty of, of humanity. Foolishness. Living according to the flesh is foolishness. Now, listen to me. It could be things that are beneficial for you in the flesh, but it is all centered from hum humanistic way of thinking, and God is empty in it. God is void in it, and therefore it may be, from an earthly standpoint, a wise choice. You may be able to make money off of it. It may help you physically, and it may be beneficial to other people, but if God is not involved in it and it's rooted in a lie, that's foolishness. There's a lot of people in our country that are extremely intelligent, smart people who make smart choices, but they are foolish people because they don't live for the glory of God. And what they do is not based on truth. It's based on facts, but it's not rooted in the eternal word of God. I mean, you know some foolish people. How many of you ever lived foolishly? See, we've all been stupid, acted stupid. We've all lived foolishly, and we're all ignorant of things as well. But the Scripture says if we find ourselves within man, for an example, when he says that you, are, or, or you, you can be in judgment with the council, that would be a, a governing body. That means you go to court. Litigation. Somebody can sue you if you defame their character and you going around telling everybody they're empty-headed. They're utterly useless. They have no value whatsoever. And you slander their character. You can be sued for that even today, couldn't you? Couldn't you be sued if you, if you discredit or slander somebody's character? Misrepresent somebody? Say on a company, you, you work for a company and, 
and you don't like this person and you so you have the wrong motives and you go and you start saying this person is utterly useless they're no value everything they do everybody else is putting input on it they have no sense whatsoever and you get the upper management believing that and they fire them and they find out you did it you could be sued for that couldn't you well the scripture saying here look you you could be in judgment with the council if you call somebody raka utterly useless but he says let's take it a little step further in the severity of the judgment if you call somebody foolish <coughs> you and you can be in you can possibly you can be in judgment for hellfire now remember foolishness is what somebody who 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 chooses not to go the way of the lord basically which would be a sinner, right? Which the Bible calls people foolish, amen? amen? And the Bible says we can accurately describe people as being what? A fool. But he says there's more severe judgment in that which is a legitimate, accurate statement of a person who is not following the way of God. You could still be in judgment of hellfire. But when you call somebody Raka, now you're getting in an area where you're defaming the, 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 the intentional purpose of a creator who created that person with a mind to act out and live out what God's created them for. Don't all, everybody that's created is created by God, isn't it? Amen. So you say when God created that person, who is a fool or empty-headed of no earthly value, no eternal value, saying God made a mistake when he created them. And you probably said that before, hadn't you? About somebody. What was God thinking when he made that person? I think you understand what I'm talking about, right? Now, which one is a more severe accusation? Which one? The one against God, isn't it? But he says the one against God, you, you, you may only stand in trouble against who? Against man, the counsel. But really, accurately describing a person as a fool, that is a fool, you can be in standing judgment of hellfire. What is he saying? You're not trying to help that person not get down The idea is your intent really is not to, same way with the moat in the eye, won't you deal with what's in your eye first rather than having a motive to hurt your brother? Won't you do something about yourself so that you can be a help, not a hindrance or a hurt? But the idea is this, is that, folks, we all fall in this category of even in the lesser degree of the accusation, which can be legitimate, we still can be, uh, we, we can be misaccurate in our interpretation of somebody's foolish action and misrepresent a person and still be in judgment of hellfire. The, the, the whole point of the Sermon on the Mount is revealed that we're all sinners and we all deserve hell. Amen? None of us can live up to this, what he's saying. So the whole point is to drive what? Hum, humble us so that we'll seek mercy from God. That I fit this category. I've called people a fool. I've called them, I called them worse things than that before. Amen? Forgive me, Lord. I, I need mercy because I deserve the fires of hell. This is what he's, what he's pointing out. Every one of us are guilty of these things. There's not one person that is free of this. 
And that's what he keeps. How many times have you pointed out your brother's problems, but you had problems galore? It sure is easy to see fault in everybody else, ain't it? Yeah, but think about it. I mean, how, well, can't you accurately describe somebody else's issue and just overlook yours? We're good at it, aren't we? No, notice what he says in that passage. Go back to Matthew. Watch this. I think he says, won't you, you point out the, 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 um, the twig in your brother's eye and you don't consider the fact that you've got what? Look, look what he says here. Verse number one, judge not that ye be not judged. Now, automatically that throws a wrench in it, don't it? Because the Bible tells us that no matter how we live, we've got to make judgment, right? How can you discern things if you can't, if you're not allowed to judge things? How can I determine if somebody's worthy to follow in the, in the word they give me or not? Every aspect of our life, it is so natural for us to judge. We are created with a, 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 a discerning mind to make a distinction. The word judge there, to make a distinction. As, as natural as it is for a man to have a natural attraction to women, God's put within the human a natural desire. A man is naturally attracted to women. Women naturally attracted to men. It's natural. It ain't even something you got to work at. Right? Well, just as natural as that is judgment. You have to judge. Don't you teach your children from little on what they can touch and not touch, who they can listen to and not listen to, who to follow and not follow, instructions. Some people are not safe to be around. Amen? Everything, everything you take in your mind, you've got to make a judgment on. Every act somebody makes. Doesn't the Bible even tell us these things? That we were what? To take every thought into captivity unto the obedience of Jesus Christ? Doesn't the Bible teach us that? What does that mean? That when, Deborah, you speak to me, I am... I am demanded by God that every word you speak, I'm to take into captivity and line it up with, is this accurately aligned with the Word of God or is it not? And therefore, what would be my action to that? Everything. But not only your thoughts, my thoughts as well. I've got to take in the obedience. So I am the judge everything. But the Scripture says, let my judgment be in righteousness. Don't judge from your own resources. It has to be in righteousness. Well, what standard of righteousness do I have then to make judgment? How can I accurately make a righteous judgment? Well, our lives must be in order to a particular standard, no doubt. But what standard is that? 
the life of Christ, which we find and reveal to us through his word. Amen. So I bring it, I bring it and line it up with the word of God. That's the only, because everything else in life's changing. I mean, y'all's hairs is changing. Even though you can't, you can't make your hair white or black, can you? Now, I know you can go to the store and buy something and dye it. But you, you don't have the, the authority, the power, nor the right to change it from its, its. You can't. You can alter what's on the outside, but you can't alter the, where it's coming from. You know what I mean? You don't have that. So why worry about that? No. Oh. You can go to the Bosley Institute and they could make it work on you. Are you with me? So see, people in our culture, this is what people will tell you. You don't have the right to judge me. The Bible says, judge not least you be judged. Well, I beg to differ. I do have the right. Matter of fact, I'm demanded to make a judgment in regards to you, but I can't judge you by what I see. For God doesn't judge the outward man. What's on the outside, he judges what? What's on the inside, and what's on the inside, the Bible tells me, out of the mouth, the heart, what? So I've got to watch how you live and what you say will reveal who you are and what you think. And if I don't discern, as, as Psalms 10 would say, when I don't discern or, or hear God in your conversations, I know to stay away from you. I've got to be able to make judgment on that. Now, the thing is, I've got to make sure the standard by which I am making judgment on is the same standard that is also measuring my life. And if I let the word be that which speaks to me, then I'll be in a position to recognize things in my life that doesn't match up with the word. And I'll be paying attention to that and not get caught up with your problem, though I will be able to deal with me. And when I can clearly deal with me, then I'll be able to clearly see and I can help you. But if I'm only focusing on you, my intent is to harm and hurt you, not to help you. Are you with me? And that, that's now we've all been guilty of this, haven't we? We like pointing out the fault in somebody else because it sometimes makes us feel a little bit better, don't it? I ain't got that problem. I got my own. I got many others, but I don't have that one. You know what I mean? Don't that make you feel a little bit better? Well, that's what he's, what he's saying here. Look, verse number two. For, what, for with what judgment ye judge, ye shall be judged. The Bible teaches us over and over, we shall reap what we... If you give, it shall be what? Given back to you. If you give judgment, the Bible says, you'll get judgment. That's right. If you give mercy... Right. If you give money, you what? Receive. You give away what? Truth. It's going to be what? Given, given back to you. How is it going to be given back to you? Good measure. Pressed down, shaken together. Men shall pour in your bosom, the scripture says. It shall overflow. It shall. So you'll reap actually more than you sow. That's the principle. So if you give a little judgment, you're going to reap more judgment back than you gave. 
it's just a law that uh, that God has put into practice. Verse 2, for with what judgment ye judge, ye shall be judged, and with what measure ye meet, what degree you judge, it shall be measured to you again. And why beholdest thou the mote that is in thy brother's eye? What do you think of the word beholdest there? Can't get your eye off of it. You keep looking at it. It becomes something that is cankerous to you. Becomes a problem. You know, some people can be problematic to you. You know how some people, a lot of times it's family members, isn't it? Why is that? People that you're close to, every little thing they do bothers you. Are you with me? Family feuds. You know what I'm talking about? Why is that? Because we're doing what he says not to do. We're beholding it. We keep looking at it. And remember, anything you look at and keep looking at, either you're going to become it or you're going to follow it. It's something's, it, it, It's part of reaping and sowing. That's why the Scripture teaches us to look unto Jesus. Amen? The author and finish of our faith. Why beholdest thou the mote that is in thy brother's eye? Here it is. But considerest not the beam that is in thine own eye. Considerest not. You know what this passage parallels with? I want you to think about this for a moment. Remember Abraham. Remember when Abraham was 100 years old and his wife was was 90 years old and God came to him and said, Abraham, within the time of life, Sarah's going to have a child. And the Bible says, Abraham believed God. And when he believed God, the scripture says that he did not consider this fact that his body was dead nor the deadness of his wife's womb. He didn't consider it. Now, what does that mean, he didn't consider it? He was so captured with God and captivated by his commitment, his promise, he didn't consider the fact that he was 100 years old. You know what that means? It means it never came to his mind. It never weighed in. He never factored it in. He got so caught up with what God was telling him, he never thought about, being a hundred-year-old man. Now, I'm sure in the past he probably did. But at that particular moment when God spoke to him, he didn't even think about it. And he didn't even think about the fact that his wife's womb had been closed all her life. And she's 90 years old. She's got a dead womb. And God, that he never thought about it. Now, this is the same flow, same thought. He says that when you keep looking and you can't quit looking at a problem in somebody else's life the fact that you have a problem never even comes to your mind never even enters in that you got an issue as well but if you would look unto the lord and let his light shine upon you you'll see more clearly about your own life and then you can what you can truly help the other person who has an issue as well so the point is, is that we got to know who to look to. Amen. We got it needs to be said that we can't we can't stop looking under Jesus. 
That'd be a good thing to this. That would be a good if we could be described in many, in many, many ways. One way we would definitely want to be described is somebody who can't quit looking unto Jesus. Wouldn't that be an accurate? Wouldn't that be a lovely thing that people could say? But one thing I can say about about Karen, she can quit looking unto Jesus. Well, that'd be good, wouldn't it? Can't quit looking unto Jesus. You can't get them down. Amen. I mean, no matter what enters in, no matter what happens, you can't get them down. Why? Why? You, why they're always lively? Why they're always hopeful? Why they're always helpful? Because they they just can't quit looking to Jesus. Why they don't, man? They got things going on around them. Their kids are messed up. Their 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 resources just don't look like it's uh, going to come together. The the job looks like it's falling apart, but they ain't because they can't quit looking unto Jesus. Boy, that'd be pretty good, huh? That'd be good to put on. Boy, I wish. Just think about that. Put it on the tombstone. He never quit looking. Unto Jesus. Woo. He just can't quit looking unto Jesus. I love that to be said about me. He can't quit looking unto Jesus. Because when you're looking unto Jesus, which the Bible teaches us is our lifeline. Running the course that he's given us. Says it to look to him, eyes fixed upon him, and to consider him. Because you measure up his life, how he lived in the face of adversity, measure yours up next to it. How did he do it? There was a joy that was set before him. What was that joy? It was the will of the Father. And what is the joy of the Lord? What is the joy of God, the will of God? It's our strength, amen? Can't quit looking unto Jesus. Mm. Praise the Lord, amen? Aren't you glad for the blood of Jesus? Because outside of the blood, we all deserve hell. Would go to hell. Mm. And because of the blood... I can't quit looking unto Jesus. Amen. Hmm. Hmm. Let's pray. Father, we thank you tonight. Thank you for this time we have to just fellowship and be able to share one with another. Thank you for the, the opportunity to be able to pray and pray over uh, people's lives that uh, we don't know, but we know you do. And, Lord, we want to pray according to your will. So we ask you to help us. Give us that discerning spirit that when we lift up people, uh, we want to pray fervently and effectively. We want our prayers uh, to, to, to really um, have an eternal impact and value. So we want to have a discerning spirit on how to pray and who to pray for and how to pray for them, and what to pray specifically. So we know that you can help us. 
as even the story that that Greg shared with us tonight of dad who was able to to buy the right size because you being the one who intervenes and helps Lord you can guide us in every dynamic of life you teach us Lord, to not lean upon our own understanding, but to acknowledge and trust you in all our ways. You promised you would direct our path. And you even affirm that even more distinctly in the New Testament when you teach us to seek first the kingdom. Help us be single-minded upon you. And when we get distracted and unsettled, help us recognize that we are operating in unbelief and we're factoring in every other dynamic in this world and not just being captivated with looking unto you. Help us be the men and women that you want us to be and that it can be said tonight, this is the only time we have. Our day is about far spent. Tomorrow's not here yet, so right now is the only time we have. May it be said of us as we depart from here tonight that they can't quit looking unto you. We love you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.